Welcome to ePartrade Live. Uh, this is the webinar titled Building Endurance and Dependability into Off-Road Race Engines. Uh, we're happy to have with us uh, Jeff Ginter of Jeff Ginter Racing Engines, uh, Lauren Haley, a five-time Ultra Four champion, two-time King of the Hammers winner. Uh, we're scheduled to have Eric Miller join us. Uh, he's in Maryland right now, which is, I guess is having weather problems and kind of blew out his internet. So he's trying to put together something where he has a hot spot and has access to us and he'll join us as quickly as possible. I'm your host, John Kilroy. I'm Chief of Content and Audience Development for ePartrade. And then before we get any further, I, I just want to acknowledge and thank those who served our country in the military on this Veterans Day. Thank you for preserving our country, for keeping us safe and protecting the great democratic experiment that is these United States. Uh, thank you all. And then a brief description of ePartrade. Uh, basically, we're creating the online strategy for the worldwide racing industry. The digital age provides everyone in the racing industry with easy access to just vast quantities of information right from your desk or your laptop or your smartphone. A lot of information is available at no charge. So for the industry, we want to capture that power, and that's what we're doing. And it's basically three-pronged. Um, Trade itself is a, a, a database, basically uh, online, available to you, very easy, uh, no charge. We kind of digitize the racing industry worldwide, globally, 25,000-plus racing organizations at your fingertips. Then we developed some smart sourcing technology to make it easy to source products and suppliers uh, online. Um, and at, at no charge, it's not an e-commerce site. You can connect with the supplier right uh, within the platform. It's fun. Uh, give it a try. And then second, we're providing these ePart Trade live webinars, which have been really fun and informative. And uh, we've, we've had some really high-powered individuals like today be part of it. And, and uh, it's, it's really a, a neat thing to bring to the industry. And then third, with the racing trade shows canceled this year, ePart Trade is stepping forward to provide a safe, online option. Uh, we feel like we can't afford to miss that annual kind of getting together and also the preview of 2021 new products. So we're organizing uh, online race industry week, November 30th through December 4th. And it's a trade show experience online. <clears throat> we, we've uh, got over 50 hours of technical webinars, business webinars, and some fun webinars that we're doing just to kind of have some fun. And just one login gets you all the content uh, that we're putting out. And then you go to epartrade.com and, and we have hundreds of companies already signed up and they'll be providing their 2021 new product introductions online. Um, uh, we have industry leaders working with us along with Racer, Mag uh, Racer Magazine, racer.com, Chip Ganassi, Brian Herda, uh, USAC's Kevin Miller, Formula Drifts, Jim Lau, uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway's Doug Bowles. Uh, so we have this large group of industry leaders who are, have committed to working with us. And you don't have to leave your shop, you don't have to leave your place of business, and, and everyone in the shop is welcome to attend. They can have access, and they can have the login, we welcome them. We can take thousands and thousands of people in this thing. And uh, <clears throat> registration is free, so go to ePartrade to register, and, and just because it's something new and different, and it's never been done before, you have to check out at least one event. So go today, get the, uh, the Zoom login, and you'll be all set. Now, I have an announcement I'm going to make for the people who have gathered here about Online Race Industry Week that we've known about for a week, but we just couldn't really make it public and we're making it public officially today. Our opening uh, guest speaker, uh, Monday morning, early uh, November 30th, is Roger Pesky. 
So I, I wish I had kind of a, a drum roll and an orchestra and horns to just, ah. So uh, Roger Penske is the, the kickoff guest speaker. And uh, we're just really uh, pleased and honored uh, to have Roger. And uh, just, you know, a great racer, a great leader in this industry. And, um, you know, he's got the Indianapolis Motor Speedway now and all of us rest better and rest easier uh, with, with Roger there uh, owning the Speedway. And then some quick housekeeping notes for today. All, all the webinar attendees are on mute and you're, you're not on video, so we don't have distractions. But we do want your questions. So at the bottom of the uh, Zoom screen, there's a, a chat option. And just open the chat option and, and write out your question. And I'll be keeping an eye on that. And I'll put the question to uh, Jeff or Lauren or Eric. Eric has found a way to join us. Eric, thank you for getting through the weather problems and, and getting here. We appreciate it. And uh, so anyways, uh, write your questions now. Just start now. And then throughout the next hour, just keep giving us questions. And we'll put them to uh, Jeff and Lauren and Eric. Uh, if you're having problems with Zoom, we can't really help you right now. So I'm sorry about that. And then we're going to record this webinar. And then we'll, we'll send you... Uh, afterwards, a link to where you can watch the webinar or share it with people that you want to have see it. So uh, we'll do that when it's all over. So uh, again, our speakers, <clears throat> Jeff Gitcher, Jeff Gitcher uh, Racing Engines. And uh, I, I think, you know, I, I was fortunate in my career that I had like a big overview of the racing industry and all segments of racing and retailers, engine builders, manufacturers. And I, I really like that. And Jeff is one of the few people I think I've met who kind of has a similar perspective. I mean, he's worked in the parts business, the engine building business. He's represented uh, suppliers of parts. And now I'm now a big race engine builder in off-road racing. So uh, Jeff's one of those guys, you can ask some really big questions about the industry. And he's been there and done that. So we'll do some of that today. We'll have some micro questions and some big questions. Uh, Jeff worked at Speed Automotive, one of the first mail order and walk-in speed shops in Southern California inside sales, eventually sales manager, worked at Service Center, which is similar to Speedo Motive. And uh, he was doing um, supplying parts, engine parts, and also had a full machine shop there. And they did uh, machine work for Ron Shaver, Donovan, Keith Black, Rodek, all those people. Worked at SCAT Enterprises, responsible for the development of the SCAT V4 midget engine for USAC midgets. Won races on Thursday Night Thunder. I mentioned Thursday Night Thunder because I love that so much. And we all did who watched it. And we wish it'd bring it back tomorrow. Worked for LA Enterprises, J.A. Pistons. I think that's where I met Jeff. Race Tech Pistons. And, uh, and then about five years ago, he was contacted by a longtime friend uh, to help him with the off-road uh, engine program that they had. And uh, he, he got connected. And then uh, he started winning races. And the phone blew up. And, and now he's got the successful race engine shop. Um, and then uh, Lauren Healy, uh, five-time Ultra Four champion, two-time King of the Hammers uh, winner. And then Eric Miller, who's the reigning uh, Ultra Four champion this year. Uh, and so we're, we welcome these guys here as well. And I don't know if everybody knows what King of Hammers is, is about. Uh, and I was trying to think, how am I going to explain King of Hammers if no, nobody's ever been there? So number one, you got to watch a video. Just go and watch a video because it's spectacular. And this is the way Marty Fiocca for Racer.com explained it. Uh, so King of the Hammers is a dusty mess of pure joy with the very best and, shall we say, most colorful of what this sport and lifestyle has to offer. 
that's commonly referred to as the motorized version of Burning Man. Now, over a week long, uh, the motorsports gathering in the Cern Valley has one of the best racing event names ever, and it's an outdoor celebration and mosh pit all at the same time. And what started out as an informal bet between a dozen high-performance four-wheel drive enthusiasts 12 years ago has just frantically escalated. And it's just really spectacular. And uh, so I'll start now. And I'm actually going to start with Lauren and Eric. And so, uh, Lauren, what, what brought you to Jeff? So what were you looking for in terms of your engine program? And, and it, what did you get from working with Jeff Ginter? So uh, 2009 is about when I started racing and, and it was, it was just a hobby for me to, for me and my, my friends to go out to uh, Johnson Valley and the King of the Ambers and, and have a week out in the desert at, at the burning man of, uh, of off road, so to speak. And uh, it, it just, it kind of took off as we started winning races and, and the, uh, the series started developing, you know, it, it took off and started being, you know, my whole life where, where that's all I was focusing on. And as, sponsors came on and, and we started doing this you know for a living uh things got more and more serious and we just in about i think 2015 or 16 is when i started talking to jeff and at that point we were having a lot of motor failures you know we were we were buying the off the shelf just kind of get by race motors but but not having a, a real race motor built and started talking with jeff uh, went through a year where I probably had four or five motor failures in one year and talking with other people in the industry, you know, Jeff was building these motors in the desert community for, for the desert racers that, that were surviving. And uh, I don't think a lot of the other race motor builders understood the shock load that, that desert racing and specifically King of the Hammers that we were putting through these engines. They uh, we've got 40 inch tall tires. There's a ton of weight out there. And it's backfeeding into the motor and was creating motor failures on a regular basis. And, and we couldn't figure out how to stop it. And, uh, you know, talking with other people in the community, you know, Jeff Ginner's name kept coming up. You know, he's, he's got this figured out. He knows how to, how to get you to the finish line. And, you know, it, it really is. He, he's, uh, he's stepped up our game. The motors that we've, that we've had not only produce more, more horsepower, but, uh, you know, are, are surviving through a race season where, you know, we just do normal prep on the motor. So, you know, Jeff, Jeff's done a, a lot of, a lot of homework. And like you were saying, he's been around all of it. He, he knows how to fix these problems. Yeah. That, that form of racing, I, I just can't believe, uh, like you say, the, the shock load on the whole car and the whole engine. And, and really as people in racing sometimes talk about driving the car and the engine to the edge of destruction. I mean, that's like the starting point. <laughs> Of, of King of Hammers is destruction. I mean, it's right there, right at the start of the race. So it's pretty amazing. And Eric, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, how did you come to find Jeff and what were you looking for as far as something for him to solve for you? Sure. Um, I'm going to echo what Lauren said. I mean, uh, we both have a pretty similar story. I started racing uh, about the same time, 2008, 2009, back on the East Coast and caught wind of this King of the Hammers. And I actually qualified for it in 2009, the year that Lauren first raced. Uh, back in Pennsylvania, they brought a qualifier to the East Coast to say, let's, let's try to get more competition from all over the country. This was when it was still very grassroots based. And I mean, heck, I qualified for that race in a, in a Jeep. I mean, seriously, it was nothing more than a 95 Wrangler um, with some big tires and terrible shocks and, you know, as, as grassroots as it comes. So, you know, we, we started slow. Um, you know, we were using the GM based platform for engines and 
the stock stuff just doesn't cut it. Um, they don't make enough power um, and, and you're stuck with starting to build these things. So we were putting heads in a cam on them, uh, you know, using trick flow heads. And I actually was fortunate enough out of college to uh, uh, work for Pack Racing Springs um, in sales and marketing for those guys and helped with a lot of product development. So I started to, uh, you know, come across the same type of issues that Lauren did. I just wasn't having reliability out of my motors. I went through a few local builders just to try to keep my program based on the East Coast. And again, no one understood what we were doing with these cars, um, you know, trying to trying to compete at the front of the sport. And Jeff's name kept coming up in the industry. Uh, he was actually one of our customers, uh, just like Ronnie Shaver and, and all those other guys. And I was really hesitant to go to California to have my motors built because I just, I, I hate that idea of not being closer to these shops but the reality is the epicenter of off-road is southern california and uh you know i got to meet jeff and lauren had been a customer of his and he had fixed some of lauren's problems already um so you know again it's a small world uh got to meet jeff realized how great of a person he was and the um really the i guess what the person person personalization he put into each engine he built that thing like it was his own personal motor and, and that really i uh, gravitated toward that because you know the, the care was there uh it didn't matter who it was for it was uh it was his own baby that he was building and uh we've had a great success with his motors now multiple championships multiple koh wins well, that's great it's really a neat experience to ha have customers uh, champions but customers kind of explain the relationship uh, with the race engine builder I think the relationship that you described goes back, you know, just decades in terms of uh, winning racers and, and engine builders. And so it's really neat to resurrect it and, and see it here happening. And uh, Jeff, congratulations for, for meeting uh, uh, all the demands of this form of racing. And um, how, explain your approach to the challenge of, of building race engines for this kind of racing. Jeff? In this type of racing, whether it's, you know, king of the hammer, score, best in the desert, um, it all comes down to the weakest link. And you're no better than the weakest link. It could be that, you know, $2 bolt that takes you out. So we come at it from a little different approach, probably more of an analytical approach um, to building engines. Um, and I've been blessed throughout my career to number one, I've grown up in Southern California, which was the epicenter or the, really the starting point for this whole off, or not so much off-road, but the performance racing side of it or the engine side. Um, having actually manufactured crankshafts, connecting rods, pistons, blocks, cylinder heads, um, I understand it from the design point, um, as well as like from the metallurgical side, so I'm able to look at it maybe a little differently than most, and I can look at products and components, and uh, you can judge them pretty quickly. Yeah, it, 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 I'm going to make this very simple, but it, it just seems like one of the tasks is to make sure things don't fall off. I mean, I can't imagine the abuse the engine takes. You know, it's, it's abusive enough in an engine in a dirt late model car or a sprint car, but to have an engine at Ultra 4, it just seems one of the basic issues, how do you keep things from just falling apart? And again, you know, whether it be um, Ultra 4 or the off-road racing community, I mean, all of these guys, Lauren and Eric, um, for sure, 
Um, here you've got a couple guys that could break a steel ball with a rubber mallet in a sand pit. Yeah. Um, it's just difficult. And so we really have to, and, and if you look at Lorne and Eric's engine programs, they're two very different engine programs. Um, Lorne's is very, very aggressive, um, you know, very much on the horsepower side. Um, Eric's is a little more calm. We actually still run a hydraulic-based camshaft um, in his application. However, you still need to know which components you can use and which ones will work and which ones will interact with each other. Um, and again, having the very fortunate background um, in the manufacturing side of these components over the years, um, I've got to know the owners um, very intimately with all of these aftermarket companies. So I don't really have to rely upon the internet or something that I read or something that previously you would have seen in a print publication. Um, if I don't think something's right or something seems a little bit out of place, um, you know, I, I have some advantage where I can just go directly to the owner of these companies and work at that level. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of these companies, um, you'll get somebody on the other end of the phone and, and, you know, they do their best and they try really hard and it's their job, but they don't have that in-depth experience and that knowledge. And throughout my career, again, I've been blessed. I mean, I've worked with the best people in this industry, whether it has been Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, so forth, um, whether it's been the guys in Sprint Car, you know, so forth. And so if I run into an, a problem or a situation that still doesn't seem right, um, I'm a little bit like a lawyer that I have this tremendous amount of reference material that I can log back into and I can pick the phone up across the country and ask somebody and even other competitors that um, build these, you know, incredible off-road racing engines. And you don't want to see somebody struggle and suffer. Um, and so we're pretty good about sharing knowledge. I mean, we'll get to a certain point of sharing knowledge and then, you know, it's kind of every man for himself type thing. But um, so in this type of stuff, uh, you really have to have it all together. And I appreciate how we're kind of discussing there's crate engines out there and off the shelf engines, but some ways they, they just fail and they fail in this application. And it's uh, refreshing and rewarding to again, see the value of a, a real race engine builder uh, putting this all together. It, it seems like the, um, the rules in, in this form of racing are looser to maybe almost non-existent. I don't know if I've got that right when it comes to the race engine. So I, I was reading up about it and, and the class is not limited on tire size, engine or chassis design other than to meet safety requirements for the class. So when it comes to the engine, Jeff, do you have a, a, a lot you can work with or are there rules restricting you? None. And that's kind of the beauty of the off-road thing. It's still kind of the last of the wild frontier, so to speak. Um, you know, obviously with every team and every customer, there are budgetary considerations um, of what we can and what we cannot do. But um, it does leave a lot of room for innovation. But what a guy really has to concentrate on in, in this area 
is in dependability and longevity. Um, and even in the case of Lorne, I mean, our first go around, um, Lorne failed a component first time right out of the box. Um, we had been working um, very closely with manufacturers. We do a lot of development and design work with a lot of the manufacturers just because of our background. Um, so they'll quite frequently call here for input uh, for product testing. And so we had been working with a component um, and had been using it in our off-road engines perfectly, flawlessly, no problem. Um, Lorne immediately goes out and bam, I mean, right out of the box. And so, I mean, this is how you want to start this relationship with a guy that's already previously had been beaten up pretty bad with some engine situations. Um, I wasn't in town. I was at uh, a race. I was at another off-road race when he called. And of course, that's when you kind of swallow deep and your stomach is about right up to here. Um, and you say, okay, you know what, whatever happened, we'll do it. We'll take care of it. We will make it right. And that's what we did. And I think if you ask Lauren, there were no shortcuts taken. It was all out of pocket, but um, you've got to step up. You've got to play at that level of the game. And it's, it's about providing that level of customer service. Oh, very cool. You know, uh, in my, I had about 30 years in the racing industry. And, and when, it start, when I started, it was still pretty open when it came to race engine builders uh, and doing their thing. And then little bit by little bit, there's more and more rules, more and more rules. And it, it came to the point where really genuine innovation, not just in racing technology, but in automotive technology, it, it became cheating. So real improvements, things we need to do to have the technology evolve, the, the door started getting slammed shut on that virtually everywhere. And kind of one of the few places you can go to, to for engine builder, just really have fun and have a, a blank sheet of paper is, um, you know, uh, land speed racing and, and off-road racing. <laughs> I've done both. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, I guess, you know, there, there are rules and rule books. And as of course, one of my very late great friends, Mr. Smokey Eunuch, um, you know, was a customer and had become a friend, um, you know, later through my career. Um, and it's all up for interpretation. Um, and so, you know, we dance around rule books. We dance around, legalities in some cases. Um, we always err to the side of caution, but in this era, um, if you go back 10 years ago and further and ask anybody, the most demanding application for a race engine, hands down, would have been offshore boat, hands down. Um, and I'm gonna say, you know, arguably six, seven, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, the off-road applications have dwarfed even the marine stuff. Um, marine has its own very unique um, requirements and set of parts, but what these off-road engines have to do, like what's coming up next week, we've got the Baja 1000. Um, you're talking 1000 brutal, grueling miles from the moment that engine lights off. Uh, it is gonna see no love in the worst, most hostile, dirty environment heavy vehicles, 40-inch tires, you know, run through whoops and sand washes. Um, and I mean, it is, it wreaks havoc on engines. It, it really does. Yeah, 
decades ago in, in the racing industry, I had my eyes open with just kind of one sentence that somebody said. And, and they said, you look at a trophy truck back then, and, and you're going to find technology that, that rivals technology on an F1 car in terms of, of the science and the engineering. And it just woke me up, and I kind of looked at off-road racing differently ever since. And uh, I just have really respect for uh, the whole segment of, of motorsports. And I know there's a lot of people who kind of experience the same thing who are uh, outside one minute and didn't quite understand it and then stepped into it and said, oh, my God. And, and like Wilford Eibach of Eibach Springs. I mean, he, he just loves off-road racing. And he, he goes there. He loves looking at the cars. He loves the people. And, and he, he can't wait to get back out there in the desert and just hang, you know. And, and then when it comes to uh, King of the Hammers, uh, these guys, one part of the race are just flat out. And then another part of the race, they're, they're, they're rock climbing. So it's just two different demands uh, from the engine. It's spectacular. And, and then, uh, Lauren, um, I'd like you to share your kind of journey into off-road racing. And, and then um, what, what do you love about this segment of the sport? So my journey uh, into into racing, I actually had no racing background whatsoever. Uh, sports was what I was really into, played in college, uh, and probably created my competitive nature. And once I was done with college and had graduated, you know, was kind of looking for that next thing to to be passionate about, and and really, you know, just started as off roading as as my hobby. It's what me and my friends did on the weekends. We traveled around the country, but never really did anything competitive. Um, and in 2008, the owner of King of the Hammers actually showed up in my backyard where I where I normally off-road and told us about the King of the Hammers and what he was doing. And he was at a small rock crawling competition. Um, and I, I never really got into the rock crawling stuff. Uh, the cone dodging was a little bit too slow paced for me. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what we were doing on the weekends for fun. Um, you know, racing from one trail to the other, hanging out with all our friends, and and it was exactly what King of the Hammers was, and it kind of got my computer uh, competitive juices flowing, and and so me and all my buddies showed up on the lake bed in 2009. Uh, we had to get in through the last chance qualifier. You uh, you still have to qualify to race to race King of the Hammers, so it's not just you know sign up, pay your dollars, and get to show up. Um, and so we all went out there. I, I actually qualified second. It was the first time ever getting in a race car. And uh, went out there for the race and, and just broke this, you know, kind of beat up race car that I had. It, it wasn't a race vehicle. It was my trail buggy that, that we were. But, I mean, it just, it went straight to my heart. I fell in love with it. Um, went home, talked my wife into a second mortgage on my house. Uh, took, some, took some cash out of there and uh, built what was called a, a competitive race car at that time. You know, I built it for about $50,000. Now, now our vehicles cost, you know, three, $400,000. You know, our, our motor programs cost more than that now than what I built the whole vehicle for then. But, uh, you know, came back out in 2010 and in my second race, I won King of the Hammers. And, and that's where, you know, it really started taking off that it was, you know, something that I was good at and was naturally good, even though I never had had any formal race training, you know, it's, it's, other other racers have came out and tried King of the Hammers, you know, the Robbie Gordons of the world, the Rob McCachrins, and none of them can figure out how to get through the rocks. They're great in the desert. That's what they do, but they can't figure out how to get through the rocks and, and how to win the race and, and how to even get to the finish line. So, you know, those of us that, that have been doing the rocks and, and kind of have that as our background, have this huge advantage over everybody else that comes out and tries to do it. 
And, uh, you know, it just, since then, it's just escalated out of control for sure. You know, I, I didn't ever think that I would be doing this for a living, that we'd been running a motor shop or a motor shop, that we'd have employees, you know, um, I've teamed up with Von Gittin Jr. a couple of years ago. So him and I have, um, you know, we, we own the phone, have our off-road team together and, you know, we're running full semis, you know, have four race trucks, you know, racing side-by-sides. I mean, it's just, it has escalated out of control and, you know, it almost doesn't even surprise me when the next crazy thing comes up anymore. It's just, it's, we just keep rolling with it and keep going. Let me ask you, Lauren, uh, describe a moment from a race that kind of, shares with everybody how thrilling it is and it could be a moment you thought things are about to go south on you but then you saved it is, is there a moment in racing you could describe and just share with us what it's like I'm, i mean i feel like a king of the hammers that happens about once a minute you're just <laughs> you you never know what's what's going to happen it's uh you know if you're driving over other vehicles to try to get around them if you're you know upside down on your roof if another competitor's rolling you back over to get you moving again um you know if you're spotting somebody through a section because your vehicle's broken and you're done for the weekend, you're giving them parts off your race truck. I mean, it's, it's kind of undescribable. Um, you know, if they build a city out there in the middle of Johnson Valley. So, you know, right now there's, there's not a soul on the lake bed out there, but they go out and lay out an infrastructure and set up a whole city for this festival and close to a hundred thousand people show up there during the week. And, and it, it really is just a, an unreal time. Uh, it looks like a blast. I, I haven't made it out there, but I, I, come close a couple times and I got to get out there. And then uh, Eric, uh, same with you. Uh, how did you get involved in off-road racing? And, you know, I, I'm from out west and I'm from California. So we always had a tradition in Southern California. Basically the, the construction industry all went off-road racing. That, that's what their form of racing. And, and you grew up in Maryland and that just seems kind of like far away from off-road racing, which maybe it was, but I don't think it's far away anymore. Off-road racing is truly national. How'd you get into it? Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, first, I just have to, like, look at what Lauren said and, and smile and laugh, because we've been friends for the, the last decade. We met through, uh, through King of the Hammers, but our story is so similar. You know, I was a college athlete myself and kind of looking for the next thing to get into, and, you know, I got hurt playing hockey and was starting to get into competitive rock crawling, just real grassroots and in Jeeps and everything else, and, uh, I think what, what fueled my fire for King of the Hammers was after qualifying at that, uh, that RCQ that, that Ultra 4 brought back east for the first time, you know, I realized, well, if I'm actually going to go out west and, and try to compete with these guys, we got we to gotta have something real. We got to have a real car. You know, you're not going to go out there in a Jeep and, and try to compete with these guys. And so uh, that's kind of what really sparked me to, to do this. We were building a, a pro mod vehicle at the time for the cone dodging stuff. Mara was talking about the slow speed uh, rock crawling that was kind of honestly at that point it's made a resurgence but it was dying off and uh you know my heart wasn't in it i was i was a jeep guy i, I was building a buggy just because that's kind of where the classes were going so we looked at king of the hammers we looked at this rolling chassis i already had built that was uh you know based around a four-cylinder engine with a two-speed transmission really uh really deep gears pretty much the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish when you're building an endurance race car in the desert. I mean, uh, you know, we, we thought we knew what we were doing, trying to build these things, but, you know, we've learned a lot in the last decade. So after sitting around the campfire with all my friends up in New York, just at a weekend wheeling, um, trying to decide what to do to build, uh, I realized that I was going to have to start over. I mean, I already had a, a laundry list worth of parts that was worth more than the vehicle I was already building to go try to do this. So 
I was actually able to uh, to purchase my first race car. It was a it was a used deal um, from Twisted Customs. They were scaling back their shop. I'd actually called them just about a roller because we had very limited time to get out there to that first race. We only had you know five or six months. And uh, I asked about a rolling chassis. He said, no, you know, we can't, we can't get that done in time. We could have it ready for a roller for the lake bed. And I'm like, that's not going to work for us. So uh, I ended up buying a, a used car, brought it back to Maryland, um, did two local events in it. First race I ever took it out in, um, uh, DNF'd and had, a, had an axle shaft failure. And uh, when I got back home, you know, I was trying to figure out what went wrong and how to you know, really make this racing stuff work for us. And I realized that I got to worry about finishing before I try to be fast. You know, I went out there in, in this race car trying to be fast and was over my head. So we repaired the car. It actually started our, our first uh, relationship with spider tracks. It was a part that really had never been broken. And uh, a lot of our deals have kind of come through that, right? Through innovation, through pushing the the, uh, the levels of what's capable. And so I, I was able to get my first axle sponsor through that. Went back that second race and, and won it. And uh, it was, that was pretty special to me. We went out over uh, Thanksgiving to Johnson Valley the, the year before our first race, so 2009. And we spent a week out in the desert. And uh, I did that over my vacation because I knew if we were going to invest the time and, and energy and money to come out here and try to be competitive, that we couldn't go into it blind being from Maryland. Uh, so we, we hauled out with my old Jeep we qualified in, that, that buggy that was used on an equipment trailer and a pickup truck and showed up to the lake bed on Thanksgiving. And, you know, you're just, I'm a 23-year-old kid surrounded by half a million dollar RVs and, you know, enclosed trailers with all these fancy rigs that were just out, out playing. And man, I was kind of overwhelmed. I was like, wow, we're, we're so outclassed. And, uh, you know, I was humble about it. Um, did my due diligence. I, I really took that week to learn the desert. Like Lauren said, we were rock crawlers. Um, so that kind of came natural, but I had never been to the desert. I didn't know what to expect. And I'll be honest, if I wouldn't have taken that week and kind of acclimated myself to what this race course was, there's no way I would have finished my first race, let, let alone been in the top five. Uh, because there's so many places in the desert that can, that can lose, you can lose it. You can crash your car, uh, blow up your engine. Um, so for me, that was really, it kind of instilled in me um, what it takes to finish an endurance race. And uh, after that first year, like I said, we, we finished fifth. That was the year that Lauren won his first King of the Hammers. Um, I came back, we were 18 minutes behind him. We had a flat tire and just were, un we were not prepared to change it. And I told my guys, I said, we were so close to winning this. Like, I know it can, I know we can do it. We just got to figure this racing thing out. And uh, it wasn't but two years later, I got my first win. And uh, so here we both are. Great story. Uh, congratulations to your success and, and you both, earned it and, and you worked so hard to get there. It's inspiring to us. And, and then uh, Eric, is there a moment with you as a driver that you could share with us that that, that kind of moment is, is what makes me keep going uh, in this form of racing? Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's like a trip down memory lane. I mean, all the, all the recent successes Lauren and I have both had are, are amazing um, and, and, and really special in themselves. But that first win in, in 2012, I'll, I'll never forget chasing down the first place car, um, leaving remote two with, you know, the last pit with 20 some miles to go. Um, we had, uh, I had let my, my spotter out to, uh, my co-driver out to help change a tire. We had a flat tire right out of the pits that we missed. And I was like, you know, I, I, I was bummed. I thought we were gonna, that would have been the difference in the race. Uh, right there. And so we changed the tire as fast as we could so fast that I said, 
put the tire back on the car and I'm going to take off. I don't even need you for these last 20 miles. And that was, um, that was really just this, I don't know if I would have driven as hard as I did if Rob was still in the car because I, I had nothing to lose. I was, like I said, young and, and a little bit hostile and, and just nothing but a win w was okay. And we chased down that, that second place car uh, with like three miles left to go on a dry lake bed. I mean, that ride through the desert, through the bumps for, for five miles before we hit that lake bed was the, the verge of, of, of just disaster. Uh, but I was able to keep the car together. And when we hit that lake bed and I saw that dust trail slowly, slowly getting smaller and smaller, I realized that he was actually stopped on the lake bed. Uh, it was pretty surreal. And like I said, it's endurance racing. It's not over till it's over cresting the last summit before you could see the whole lake bed and the finish line. Uh, I could feel the steering in my car, which is a full hydraulic setup, getting really, really heavy. And at that point, you know that it's, uh, it's about ready to give up. And literally, as we crested that peak to look down at the finish line, um, I had lost the, the pump. The, it, it blew the bearings out of it. So hydraulic steering system with no fluid in it doesn't do much. Um, thankfully, I, I was able to get that car across the line. I told myself I would drive it through every RV on the lake bed to cross that finish line if I had to. And uh, yeah, I was able to get it across. But man, it was unnerving. And it, again, it reinstilled in me that it's not over till it's over. Anything can happen. You know, it's just great hearing a story like that. I mean, it, it takes me back to the days of racing on the beaches of Daytona. I mean, it was unlimited. It was being invented. And, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen next. And you got to tough it out to, to get the win. So it's great hearing those stories. Um, Jeff, when it, it, it came time to, for you to take on the the choice and the perspective of, of, of opening your engine shop, you must have in your career picked up a lot of, okay, I, I'm not going to do that when I have my engine shop. I'm not going to do that when I have my engine shop. I am going to do this when I have my engine shop. When you open uh, Jeff Ginter Racing Engines, what were your goals uh, for your shop and some practices you kind of put in place right at the beginning? Jeff? Fundamentally, um, obviously to build the best engine that you can for that given application, um, to provide, you know, nothing but top tier service, um, to all of our customers. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tireless and thankless, uh, business. It's a brutal business. Um, and if you haven't been in it or been involved in it for a length of time, um, you're in for a beating. Um, and even knowing the waters and, and knowing the territory, um, it's just very difficult. Um, but we always go the extra mile. I mean, there's times we'll put in 20 hour days. Um, if you were to ask Lauren and Eric both, um, and I think Steve Lewis touched upon this with his, um, Ed Pink, um, version that, we don't just provide engines to our customers, we provide service. And if you were to ask both Lauren and Eric and any of our customers for that matter, generally speaking, when we go out to the races, we're not touching engines. Um, all the work has been done at the shop or on the dyno. Um, we're out there for support mode. Um, and there have been times where we've spent an entire weekend with Lauren and his guys working on his car, nothing to do engine wise, but supporting him because it takes that combination. It takes that hand in glove approach. Um, and, and the same thing with Eric, you know, there've been times when, 
you know, I've seen Lauren at the races and we go by and we check on him, but I've spent the rest of the weekend and it may be changing a transmission. It may be changing a transfer case. Um, so, but you, you have to look at this as a whole. You can't look at it as just the engine. You know, we have to be involved in the cooling system. What's happening with the transmission? What's happening with the transfer case, the rear end? Um, so it's a pretty broad perspective. Um, and then I think maybe to finish that up is seeing what I've seen and seeing um, maybe some of the faults of other engine builders over the years and how they've run their businesses. Um, I really, you know, I've seen a lot of the bad and I've seen a lot of the good. And so, you know, obviously that's what you want to focus on. You want to focus on the good. Um, it's like what you see behind you here in the assembly room. Um, that I've traveled throughout the world. I've seen some phenomenal facilities, some phenomenal shops. So for us here, or for me personally, when a customer comes to our shop and looks around, there's really only two scenarios that are acceptable. One, they look around and they just don't say anything, or the other is they look around and they're like, this is exactly where I want to be. Um, you instill confidence. And if, if you walk into a shop that's dirty and disorganized and you have just junk and stuff, um, that doesn't breed a lot of positive thoughts into your customers. And so again, I've been fortunate, I've been blessed. And so what you kind of see here is, is a mimic of, you know, what I have been, um, you know, privy to all these years. Yeah, fantastic. And when you say, and I know your perspective is broad about race engine builders, I, I know how you've seen so many, you know, representing the piston lines and everything. But what was a, a mistake that you saw over and over again that, that race engine builders were making? Um, there's a few. Um, again, I think it comes down to your relationships with your manufacturers and your suppliers. Um, within any company, there's something that I refer to as tribal knowledge. Um, you have sales guys and they have their ideas and they, they think they know this and they think they know that, but they've never done it. You know, they know it from their perspective sitting at the desk, but they've never put it together as a whole. Um, and so you get these little thievedoms or these little tribal knowledge things and, um, boy, you can get a sales guy that sounds like he's completely hooked up and he will send you down a path that hopefully you can return from. Um, on the other side of that, the probably some of the largest mistakes I've seen um, is engine builders uh, throughout the years um, really kind of living hand to mouth, um, almost like a really bad contractor that you're taking in money, but you're, you're using that money to pay three jobs behind you. Um, and again, you could certainly ask this question to either these two guys that when we get a deposit from a customer, we spend money like a drunken sailor. Um, and that money is immediately spent on every part, every piece, every component, even if it may take eight, 10 weeks, 12 weeks to get, we will prepay that. So our vendors love it, and we can always ask for favors because we're always on the, the positive side of it. But you don't get down to a situation where you have to deliver an engine and you're broke. So, you know, those are the things that we've done. And, and again, I'm sure if you checked with 
you know, any of our customers and, and that type of result, it's pretty much what you'll find. Well, here we have them here. We'll check with them. Go ahead. <laughs> Lauren, uh, is that one of the things you appreciate about Jeff that, uh, you know, when you think the engine's going to be there, it, it is there? Yeah, just very meticulous and, and, and always stands behind his word. It's, it's uh, one of those things that has to be part of a, of a race winning program for sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it can be tough sometimes with, uh, when motor builders don't deliver. But one of the things that really stands out with Jeff and, and want to reiterate what he says is, is he comes and supports us at the races. And that's, that's the difference that really stands out to me. You don't see many of the other motor builders walking around the, the pits at King of the Hammers asking if you need help or, or, you know, like he said, even if it's not even necessarily with the motor, if it's something else with the race truck and, and the crew slamming on something, you know, the, him and him and his guys are, are willing to jump in and help or, or in the pits during the race, they're always there. So to me, that's, that's one of the huge difference makers. Yeah. I, I think the idea of uh, our industry, we, we kind of always think it's about parts and technology, but over and over again, it's about people, you know, and uh, Eric, is that what you especially appreciate about working with Jeff? It's not just you get the physical engine and the motor, but you, you get Jeff standing with you. Yeah, it's, it's all about the people. I want to echo what you said there, John, because, I mean, even the, even the sport of off-road racing, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, like, I'm not really a car guy. Like, uh, asphalt stuff doesn't turn me on. I'm not really into drag racing. I mean, I think it's cool. I appreciate the technology. Uh, but weekend after weekend, I wouldn't have the, the drive and desire to go back out for the off-road racing is constantly changing, evolving. It's always different, but it's the same people. It's the same type of people um, that, and, and the relationships that you build, like Lauren and I, I mean, when the, when the flag flies, you know, we're, we're the fiercest competitors out there to one another, but at the end of the day, he's one of my best friends too. And just like Jeff being there all the time, um, you see that in the off-road community. I don't want to beat Lauren because he had a, a problem. I want to beat him at hundred percent. You know, I learned that young, just playing golf. You want to beat your competition at their best. Um, and you know, we, we have that with, with Jeff, we have some of the best engines in the sport and he's there supporting it. So, um, again, it's, it's this, it's this full, um, full circle kind of deal in off-road racing that I think brings us all back and keeps us all, uh, driven and, and successful because even in the, even in the times of failure, um, it, it's not really an option. You know, we go back, we figure out what happened, we rebuild and come back. Very good. Well said. I have a couple of pretty specific questions, uh, and I think they're for Jeff mostly. Um, uh, Jeff, in dusty conditions, any recommendations on air filters? How often to change them versus cleaning, Jeff? You cannot put enough air filtration on these engines specifically, or probably any engines. Um, for us, I kind of like to use the scuba diving mentality, where two is one and one is none. So if you have two, you've got a backup. If you have one, you don't have. Um, we are going to have degradation. Um, we are going to deal with dust, and we're going to choke off these air filters. And it will get to the point where it will start to affect performance. Um, you know, right down to the point, we've had stuff so bad in the silt beds that the engines have shut off. I mean, these guys have had to jump out of their cars and knee-deep, sometimes waist-deep silt. I mean, it's like jumping into a pile of baby powder and they're having to take the filters off and smash them against the side of the car and put them back in. Well, you know, for us, that's kind of, it's, uh, 
it's kind of a built-in rebuild at some point uh, because no matter what, that dirt is going to get past those filters. So um, what I would really say is we want to get the largest air filter on these things that you possibly can, um, whether that's using um, some of the incredible stuff that's out there from K&N. Um, there's a company that we've worked with along the way the last few years, R2C makes some really nice stuff as well. Um, you just have to be careful. You can put so many outerwares and so many sleeves and foam coverings around these things that that in itself will, you know, will choke these engines down. And at the end of the day, it's an air pump. And the, the less air that thing gets in, the less power it's going to make. Very good. Another question, pretty specific, Jeff. What kind of recommendations do you have on oiling systems, external wet sump or dry sump systems? Uh, obviously, budget will play a role. And are the oil capacities high to help with oil temp? So what about the oiling system? <sighs> um, loaded question. Um, ultimately, if budgetary considerations are there, dry sump systems, hands down. Um, we do a far better job of controlling the oil inside the engine. We can pump it out of the engine remotely, run it into a large oil tank. We can de-aerate, get rid of a lot of the air bubble and foam through the tank. Um, and subsequently, we anymore, you really have to have an oil cooler, preferably a water to oil cooler or what we would refer to as a heat exchanger. Um, the wet sump stuff presents a little bit more of a challenge, um, and we really have to be cautious with the types of windage trays and scrapers. Um, the thing is with the wet sump system, we're only dealing with maybe, pick a number between six quarts, eight quarts, right? you probably won't see 10 quarts in one of these cars. Um, but in an ultra four car, more specifically, you're talking with a car that's going to sit nose high to the point where it almost wants to flip over backwards. Conversely, they're going to be pointing nose down again to where they're going to cartwheel these parts. So the oil is running away from the pickup. So you have to a lot of times install accumulators and, and these guys specifically will get their vehicles in a position and, you know, they'll have this thing at a, 70 degree angle, 65 degree angle, and they're going to sit there for, it. to me, it seems like moments on end. Um, and they're looking at how they're going to pick this best line. And I mean, you talk about the cringe factor, and that's why this is all gray, um, you know, watching this, because you know the thing is going to run itself out of oil pressure. Um, you can't keep the oil cool enough in these things. So, but the oil getting hot, taxes the water cooling system. So there's a tremendous amount of dynamics um, that take place in this that, um, that guys just don't comprehend. So I guess to summarize, if the budget is there, 100% dry sump. Um, and if you use a wet sump system, there are things you really need to do and to pay attention to, to live in this type of environment being the ultra four king of the hammer style racing. If this is a score or best in the desert, um, that type where you're out there running under constant momentum, um, a little different um, in the types of parts and pieces we would use. Okay. 
and I got another question. It's kind of wild, but it's fun. So I'll just read it and, and you respond to it. So uh, Jeff Ginter is an engine building god. From his days building sprint car engines and going to Ascot Park to his own engine building business, his prowess is uncanny and stunning. He has traveled. You didn't write this, Jeff, did you? He, he I, has, I think I did, actually. I owe somebody a nice dinner. He has, he has traveled near, far, and around the world, proving that his talent is known throughout the planet. Let's ask him this. Who is the most animated person he has ever met, besides the great buckaroo in the motorsports industry? Uh, so I'll let you respond. I don't know who the great buckaroo is. Ah, uh, wow. Well, there is the buckaroo. Um, I would probably say, back in the day, the most animated um, hands down would have had to have been Smoky Unit. Yeah. Um, hands down. Um, you know, I mean, there was just no filters. There was no anything. He told it like it was. Um, and again, I've been fortunate. I've been blessed. I've literally traveled to every continent. I've raced all over the world. Um, I've gone to the Middle East and worked for the Crown Prince. Um, you know, we've done some pretty cool stuff. I've gone to Bonneville, built and worked on land speed cars, broke land speed records. Um, so all of that, you know, ultimately makes the person that you are somewhere along the line. You know, you're, you know, if you, if you look at it hard enough, you're bound to learn a little bit as you go along. I'm so glad you mentioned Smokey. You know, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to get to know Smokey pretty well. And uh, he, he was just a, a larger than life person. And he, he just, his persistence at figuring out racing, and it was engines, but it's also, he figured out some aerodynamic stuff too, because he, he was a pilot in World War II. So he figured out how to shave off stuff off the, uh, the car. And, um, and I, I don't ever want to lose that in racing. Like to me, a, a lot of forms of racing, they're trying to turn it into, well, the story's all about the driver. And I, I just think half the story in racing is and should always be the technology and what's under the hood. And Smokey Unique should be, everybody should know his name. Jeff, everybody should know your name because it's just part of the, the story, what makes the sport interesting. Um, and, and then let's just kind of go, oh, you know, one more question I want to ask you, Jeff, because I think it's really important. You know, with, with race engine builders, I, I just find them all to be extraordinary individuals. And like you say, they just have no clock to the day. They work on the engine, but then they got to take those phone calls, help their customers get through some issues. They got to be there in the weekend during races. The engine builders are unbelievable. And then you can't sit still. You always have to get the engine to uh, get faster and better and more durable. But how do you find people to work for you who, who share a similar passion for quality control, for getting it dead right every single day? How, how do you find people like that? Ugh, um, it's far more difficult today than it was when I was younger. Um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, I mean, it was kind of in its heyday and you had a lot of guys that would, you know, loved it and, and jumped into it. And again, um, blessed, blessed being here at the focal point of, you know, this, this racing industry. Um, whether it goes back to, you know, back to early Bell, even the Bell Auto Parts, where it all started with Richter. Um, and, you know, Gene Oley at Evan Speed, that, I mean, that was the machine shop. I mean, that was Mecca um, for all of us. But as, as the millennials have come along, they're more interested in their iPads and that. Um, 
it takes a long time for them to get to the engine portion. They'll start with tires and wheels and suspensions and stereos. Um, but it, you know, to find somebody that is really into it, to the motor side of it, um, it just gets more and more difficult. And then, um, as I tell everybody, um, customers, employees, or otherwise, it's not a mistake until it goes out our door. Then it's a mistake. Things can happen inside the shop. We have to do, you have to really quality control and you have to be in this side of it. You have to be kind of an organizational freak or you really have to have some pretty heavy OCD tendencies to stay on top of this in terms of quality tolerances. Um, and I'll tell you, as an engine builder, whether it's myself or any of the other ones across the, you know, the United States or the world, um, you're dealing with 15, 18, sometimes 20 different manufacturers to produce this final component. Um, in the bulk of what we do is blank sheet of paper. I mean, we'll start and I'll just, Lauren says, hey, you know, last year, uh, we, we're gonna go, we're gonna do a Ford platform. Okay, great. And we sat down and I mean, from a phone call, you take a blank sheet of paper and, you know, several months later, you're producing a finished product. So um, it takes quite a bit, but to find these people that are still passionate about it. Um, and I kind of look at some of the, the newer up and coming guys out there and I just don't see that influx anymore. Not like it used to be anyway. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. Okay, we're getting to the, the one hour mark. So I'll just kind of ask you kind of one more big question and just the state of the sport. So 2020 was just a, a crazy year, not, not just in racing, but in our personal lives and our work lives as well. So uh, Lauren, what's the, the state of the sport right now, and especially uh, your segment of the sport in 2020 and looking ahead to 2021? Um, I mean, everything looks really good for going into 2021. They they just released our uh, our schedule for 2021, and uh, I I have a feeling that that may get pushed back a little bit. We're supposed to start our first race, King of Hammers, in February. Um, I won't be surprised if that gets pushed back a month or two. But I mean, everything's growing exponentially right now. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we couldn't get out of the industry and couldn't find partners. You know that that wanted to to come into our sport and. Right. You know, now there's there's a well over 500 racers that'll be out there racing. You know, at individual races, we've we've brought on big partners like Monster and Shell Rotella and Ford, and you know things things have really progressed well for our sport. It's it's still very very young. Um, you know, we've only been racing for going on 14 or 15 years now. So, you know, our heyday is still yet to come. I'm very grateful that I got the opportunity to get in it early because I couldn't afford to do it right now if I was coming in on my own dime. So um, I, I think the, the future is very bright. Hopefully we're, uh, we're through all the craziness of 2020 and 2021 is going to gonna be an amazing year. Yeah, I, I, I feel that way. Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts? This is staying in your segment of motorsports right now and then uh, 20... 
think that um, everybody looks at what what we faced this last year, and and like I said, a lot of individuals and and uh, and manufacturers are in this sport are pretty like minded. I think this is everybody's release. Um, it's what people want to get out and do. I mean, I can't think of anything safer, right? We're outside. We're you know trying to run the heck away from one another in race cars. Um, I just think that 2021 is going to be a great year for off-road racing and. We're not going to let much stand in the way because uh, just like our teams and our events, uh, we're all passionately driven people that are problem solvers and uh, we'll figure out a way to make it happen. Um, everybody in the sport feels the same way. Yeah, it just certainly seems really robust and healthy. And Jeff, when it comes to the state of the sport and, and you have a real global perspective, so the state of the racing industry, Jeff, uh, where are we today, you think? And, and then is, is there one thing maybe we need to get better at in the racing industry? Jeff? Boy, yeah, the, the off-road or the engine, I mean, it never stops. Um, it's like rust. It never sleeps. It, it just continues to go and progress. I think um, all manufacturers, whether it's, um, you know, axles, transmissions, transfer cases, crankshafts, connecting rods, um, everybody is on their game. And, and what happens is I think a lot of these manufacturers, as Eric and both Lorna alluded to that they'll partner up with guys that are really in the know. And so it's just that continuing, the continual push of technology, um, whether it's in materials, metallurgy, um, it's, it's just never, it doesn't stop. Thank goodness. I, that's the fun of this business. I think it, that doesn't stop. It's also the challenge because it, you just can never stand still in this business. Um, thank you all for, for being part of this. It's 10 a.m. right now. Uh, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Eric. Uh, this has been fun. It's informative and educational. And uh, it's really kind of inspiring and motivating as well because there's so much energy in your segment of the sport. And uh, it just seems like more and more other people in other segments of motorsports, they kind of discover off-road racing and, and they fall in love with it. And where's it been all their life? And it's just a really powerful, powerful segment in racing. And they, they, they spend a lot of money and they're, they're buying parts. So uh, thank you so much. And then for uh, everybody, again, uh, Online Race Industry Week, November 30th to December 4th, uh, Roger Penske as a guest speaker will kick it off. Uh, Talking with Paul Fanner, probably he'll do the interview with Racer. Uh, November 30th, that'll be our start. And uh, it, it's shaping up to be a spectacular week. So join us there, get your registration, one Zoom login for the whole week. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. John, thank you for having us. Fun.